0: please be seated. This morning we begin a new chapter in our study of John's gospel, John chapter 5. Those who are uh, students of the scripture will notice that this is a a shift in the literature. Chapters 1 through 4 are generally considered the introduction or Uh, the presentation of jesus where his identity is becomes known and in the last uh, couple of scenes we see people beginning to recognize in him making that known and in chapter five we begin a scene this season where jesus sees perpetual conflict where the opposition for him has grown continues in its intensity culminates later on in his crucifixion and yet his ministry continues on and culminates not in crucifixion, but in resurrection, which is the reason for our hope. While you're turning there, i also just make one quick uh, announcement for you. I know we just came out of the homeless shelter, but we were asked once again by greater city ministries, such as students at William and Mary, who are... Ministering to the poor in our community um, usually by providing meals for those in hotels if in two weeks from now on March the 11th if we would take their place while they go off on their spring break uh, Tim Cleary has uh, agreed to that and so we'll be looking for volunteers who will be willing to partner with us to uh, Help partner with Raider City that day. We'll get more information for you, but just wanted to put that on your radar screen uh, But we do come this morning to uh, John chapter 5 Our reading this morning begins in verse 1, we'll continue through verse 18. So now hear the word of God. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, uh, going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The word of our Lord. Let's offer our prayer. as go to him that he would speak to us. Father, we do come and commit ourselves to your words. Uh, We pray, therefore, you would open not only our minds that we may understand, uh, but hearts that we would be willing to receive and to be instructed by uh, what you reveal to us through this passage, and even eyes to see, not only the picture that is painted here in this passage, but eyes to see ourselves, one another, and the entire world through the same lenses by which you see. Shape us and use us in accordance to your promise, That you will renew us by your word and spirit, making us more like Christ. Lord, this is our desire, but we can't make it happen. We pray that you, who have began the work in us, will continue it through until Christ is seen in us by all. To your glory and praise and our joy, we pray in Jesus. Amen. Linus and Charlie Brown are perched upon a park bench, both looking rather gloomy. And Linus leans over to Charlie Brown and and said, Charlie, sometimes it seems that life has passed me by. Do you ever feel that way? In the next frame, Charlie is looking back at Linus and says, no, but it does seem that life has run me over and keeps walking all over me. Now maybe what Charlie expressed resonates with you, it may not be your ongoing reality, but there are seasons in life where not just something bad happens, but it seems like we can't get out of our way and whatever it is that hit us backed up to make sure that they got us good. And whether that is something you're experiencing now, whether that's something you've experienced at some point in your life, or whether you have been blessed and spared of that kind of a reality at all times, there's no question that that would be an apt description of the unnamed man that we meet in this passage here this morning. We don't know really what entirely was wrong with him. All we know is that he had been afflicted for 38 years, which, if you think about it, was longer than most people or many people lived in that day. It doesn't seem likely that he was born with whatever his affliction was because other times Scripture talks about somebody who was born with an issue, and he had it for 38 years, which means he was advanced in age, and that also that very likely there was a time in his life, whether it was a brief period of his childhood or even until his productive years in teenager, as a teenager that he was as healthy and whole as everyone else that was around him. But at some point, 38 years prior to this encounter, he had something come upon him that afflicted him that made him incapable of providing for himself and living what would be considered a normal life. So consequently, he, along with all the others who were like him that lived in that area, would gather each day at this pool called Bethesda, which was believed to have healing powers, at least for some at at some times, and each day they would make their way down there in order that they might be able to get into the pool at the right time and to experience healing and relief from whatever it was that was afflicting them. As we look at this passage what we see here is the picture of humanity in all of its brokenness. Blind, lame, and paralyzed, and all waiting for someone that is able to come and willing to help them. And even if these descriptions, these physical descriptions, don't match your own experience, I find it fascinating that we often use these same words to describe our relational or personal um, brokenness. We talk about somebody, and it wouldn't be uncommon to hear somebody describing someone else as saying, she's so blind. In other words, she can't see that the guy she's dating is a jerk, um, just in terms of naive. And we we talk about the blindness when somebody just doesn't seem to see all the facts that are before them. Or somebody might be described as saying, he's so lame, which I heard described out of the words of my teenage children at one time or another, I never quite knew what they meant, but, um, but when somebody doesn't seem to quite fit in or can't go along, or somebody might say, I was paralyzed, usually it would be with fear, could be indecision or paralyzed because I, I realized there wasn't anything that I would be able to do to help myself out of whatever circumstance. These are descriptive words that not only apply to physical conditions, but they are common words that we use all the time uh, about our lives and in our relationships to describe the difficulties and the brokennesses that we have. And so when we are experiencing them, whether it's the physical expressions or the, uh, the, the more metaphorical expressions, when we are in that season, It's very easy for us to identify with these people who are at that pool. And when we are in those seasons, it's not uncommon for us to begin to wonder where God is, if there even is a God. And since most of us have come to the conclusion that there is a God, then we begin to believe the lies. Well, there is a God, and God is good, but he doesn't seem to care about me. Our brokenness is expressed and really uh, compounded by the fact that now the only hope that we have and the ultimate joy that we would have, we begin to feel alienated from, distanced from, because our affliction, physical or emotional, whatever it might be, now becomes bigger to us than God, and we live in those circumstances. And yet as we look at this passage, what we also need to see is this, that it is into that brokenness that the Messiah, that the Son of God, that God in the flesh, the Savior of the world, the one who had been the Lamb of God who had come to save us from our own sins. It's into that brokenness that Jesus walks. And as we look as the story unfolds this morning, we're going to look at it in in really there's three scenes that we have here. and So we're going to look at each of the scenes. First, we'll look at the encounter at the pool. Then we'll look at the Um, influence of the religious leaders. And then finally, we'll see the reconnection at at the temple. But as we look into each of those scenes and see what God speaks to us, that we would understand what it means for us that Jesus entered into the brokenness for the purpose of seeking and saving that which is lost. So we begin with the encounter at the pool, the pool of Bethesda we're told here at the very beginning there was some sort of a festival that was going on. It was one of the high holy days for, uh, for Israel, but we're, un, we're not told which one it is. It's unusual for John. He usually uh, t- uh, tells us what festival is going on. And then a lot of the message is tied to the message that that festival was celebrating. But in this particular one, we're just told that there is one of the festivals and Jesus came back uh, to Jerusalem to participate with all of the other people who all the other Jews in the area. And what is interesting is it appears that his first stop was not to go to the temple, which was the ultimate destination if you're gonna celebrate one of these festivals, but his first stop was just kind of the outside of town, outside of the gate, and to go to this pool where those who were the most needy and the most desperate and the most hopeless would hang out daily. That was the first stop that Jesus made. Now, as a side note before we move on, just uh, there's a historical note that is worth our understanding. This pool of Bethesda was believed by many Bible scholars, um, those particularly the critical scholars, people who were skeptical of the authority and the validity of the scriptures, for a number of years, starting in the late 1800s and throughout most of the 20th century, as being the proof that the scriptures were filled with a lot of myths and misinformation. Because the pool, as it's described here, is not consistent with Jewish architecture. It sounded much more Roman or Greek, and so it was believed then that somebody had taken the story and inserted it here into John's writings, or that whoever wrote John, believing therefore it wasn't John, uh, was not really familiar with ancient Jewish culture and made a story and yet put it into whatever contemporary culture he was in, not realizing a detail like architecture would later raise red flags for people. And so this was the passage that was pointed to for a number of years in undercutting the authority of scripture until 1966 when archeologists found the pool at Bethesda exactly as it's described in this particular passage. And so when we encounter passages that we can't explain, there's a long history of skepticism only to be proven to be exactly the way God has described it to us. But Jesus goes to that pool, is where he meets this unnamed man, and he begins, initiates a conversation with what would be rightly described as an almost ridiculous question. The first thing out of his mouth is not, oh, is there anything I can do for you? The first thing out of his mouth is, would you like to be healed? I mean. isn't the answer obvious? This guy took whatever pains it took in order to get to this pool in hopes that somehow he might be healed that day. That's why everybody was sitting out at that pool. And yet the is not as absurd as it might seem at first glance, if for no other reason than it is a tremendous and a crucial diagnostic question. It's a question that the Spirit of God may be asking some of us here, even as we consider this passage this morning. But it's a, it's a, a diagnostic question, not so much to give the information to Jesus himself or, or to God, but for the man to come to, to know himself. We see that pattern in the scripture, God asking us questions to go back to, even to the beginning in Genesis, right after the fall and Adam and Eve were hiding from God as if that was going to work. And God comes in and, and plays along and says, where are you? As if the God who knows all things, sees all things, has no idea where they are. Now, the reason God asked the question in the garden is not kind of like he was giving up when he was playing you know, hide and seek. Okay, I give up. Come on out now. He was asking the question so that they would take an inventory themselves. Where are you? And then to answer that question, they need to ask ourselves and say, well, where are we? And recognize where they presently are is nowhere near as good as where they should have been. You who are parents of young children, you know the the whole idea as well, because here's a question that was common in our household when we had younger children. What did you just do? (laughs) You never ask that question if you don't know what they just did. You always know what they just did. You just want them to know that you know what they just did, and you want them to think about what it is they just did, and those are diagnostic questions, and this is one of those kinds of diagnostic questions. Would you like... To be healed. Or even more accurate, would you like to become well? Is what the Greek literally translates. And it's significant what Jesus doesn't ask. He, he's not he doesn't ask them, Would you like to feel better? He doesn't ask, Would you like to have your symptoms relieved? He doesn't even ask, would you like to walk? Simply, would you like to become well? Or would you like to become whole? Because what is often true in John's writing is known by Bible scholars as the Johannine dualism, which just means John has two meanings behind a lot of the things that he says. And so when Jesus is speaking here, it carries the obvious implication of, would you like to be healed? from the affliction and demonstrates the concern that God has for our physical circumstances. But consistent with other places in scripture, it also indicates something more than just overcoming whatever physical ailments or emotional ailments we may have, it's about being made whole. And so when Jesus is asking, would you like to become well, He has in mind here more than just the man being able to get up and walk, but that he would become entirely a whole person, a new creation, which is the promise of the gospel for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. So it's significant that he asks this question as much as it's significant for what he didn't ask because this diagnostic question first carries the question, what is it that you want? What is it that you really desire? And the reason that's an important question is because many people, including many Christians, have never really come to the point of knowing what they really want. We want stuff, but we don't know what we really want. We don't know what we ultimately want. And if we don't know what we want, we don't appreciate it if it comes and is given to us. And then second, it's an important diagnostic question because there are some people who are very comfortable in their misery. They'll go through the motions that would appear to be relieving that which is causing them grief. But for instance, this guy who has experienced this for 38 years, the, the bulk of his life, it becomes part of their identity and they have learned to kind of manage around and it becomes part of them. And so while they talk about wanting to be freed from this affliction and they do certain things that would seem to be consistent with that, the whole notion that they would actually be relieved of this is quite frightening because their identity is wrapped up in it. It may be that they just like the sympathy that people give them. It may be that they, in sympathy, that people come around and relate to them and and try to help and that's the way that they, but they become conditioned to this. And there's many people who have afflictions that talk about wanting to be well, but it's not really what they want. And the reason that they're able to talk both ways is because they don't know what it is they really want. And Jesus is asking him, do you want to be well? And it's vitally important because I suspect that there are many Christians who have come to the Lord, not in order to be made whole, not in order to be made well, but simply because we were told that somebody was willing and able to forgive us. Sounds like a good deal. We instinctively know that we need forgiveness, even if we don't feel the weight of our own sins, you know, can't hurt. To know that, God has forgiven us, and, and so we're we're good with God. What a lot of people have come to Christ and through belief in, are in the church and are genuinely believers have come not so much with a desire to be made whole, but what writer Dallas Willard used to call uh, they came for sin management. In other words, they know they have brokenness, they know how have sin in their lives. What they don't want is for the effect of the sin to do too much devastation in their lives that would hinder their aspirations for their other areas of life. They don't want their sin to affect their reputation the way other people would see them. And so while they, they don't want to be enslaved to it, they're not really thinking in terms of being freed from their sin. They just want to be able to cope with it so that they can function and function at high levels in this world and in their life in the church in ministry. It's not about being made whole, it's not about being well, it's about just kind of getting well enough to to do well. And so Jesus asks this question, what do you want, do you want to become well? And then the man offers what probably is the most pitiful response that we're gonna find anywhere in the scriptures. I don't have anyone to help me. And what he's talking about here is the belief not only he, but really a lot of people had that was rooted on Jewish legend, particularly as it applied to this pool. And people came to this pool because they believed that it had healing powers, much like you might read about things that break out in different parts of the world, you know, the statue of Mary has tears dropping down if you touch it while the rooster is crowing at midnight then, you know, so you, know, you might be healed. And then people spend fortune to go flock to these places all over the world. This was one of those kinds of places. And what we understand about this, because he describes a circumstance that there's nobody to help him get into the water. It was believed by legend that at certain times of the day, not specific, but I guess whenever they felt like it, angels would show up and stir the waters. And then when the waters were stirred, they had healing power for whoever was the first one to get into the pool. Now, if you have a King James, New King James, or some of the older translations, you actually have that described for you in verse 4. If you have an ESV or an NIV, if you want to look, you don't have a verse 4. And the reason is, is because that part, which becomes kind of a parenthetical later insertion, an explanation of what was the belief, um, is not in the oldest manuscripts, but it is describing appropriately what... They believe, and the guy's talking about that. I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. So here he's an invalid, and so every time that the water starts stirring, he believes it's not every time that uh, a bell rings and an angel gets his wing, but every time the pool starts bubbling, that, uh, that's an angel. And he, he's ready to go, but somebody who can walk always gets in there before him. So for 38 years, he's been coming every day, and somebody always beats him to the pool. And what he needs is faster friends. Nobody is able to... Help me. And, and we look at this, and our, our natural response is, you know, we would actually laugh if it wasn't so pathetic. And yet, for so many of us, it's not that different from the way that we deal with our own problems. Something pops up into my life that I haven't had to deal with before. I hope Tim Keller writes a new book. <laughs> or whoever it is that is the guru of choice. And we are saying the same thing he says. There's no man to help me. There's no woman to help me. There's nobody that can tell me what I need to do. There's nobody that can walk this way for me. And we see the ridiculous irony here because it's the very one who spoke and the whole world came into being that is asking, do you want to be well? And yet, as easy as it is to see the foolishness of that, then how about you and I who already have experienced the grace of the one who spoke and who has made us come from death to life and we still are looking for some man, some woman to tell us what to do. And so if he's pathetic, well, I won't even say what I guess that makes us. And then Jesus' response to that is really kind of startling. He just says get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Now I don't know how harsh his tone was or how stern or how forceful his tone was, but it certainly is different than some of the other encounters that Jesus has had. You know, he's so gentle and concerned. And I'm not sure all of what this implies to us, but it does tell us something that is very true, is that when God is beginning to work in our lives, he does what is ever necessary to the individual, to grab our attention, to get us to do what he's calling us to do. And this guy, it wasn't going to be, oh, I understand. It was, let's cut through this, get up and walk. And the man does, and he found that he had been healed. Now, it's important that we understand because some people, and including some Bible commentators, get this wrong. They think that it's when he got up that he was healed, except we're told that he was healed, which is why he was able to get up, which only makes sense. He was only responding to the power of grace and we're reminded once again that what God declares, his word, is not only suggestion but powerful to accomplish and this man was healed by Jesus saying but we can be left to wonder, okay would he have even known that if he never got up in the first place? Which is one of those rhetorical questions it doesn't matter because he got up and Jesus was determined that this guy was going to get up. But he gets up and we move into the second scene. Now he encounters the religious leaders and we see the influence of what I'll call mere religion. He runs into the Pharisees and they are, let's say, lacking a sense of celebration with this guy. Now they don't do what we might think they do because they're not condemning him for being healed. That's fine, even on Sabbath. But the rule says you're not allowed to pick up your mat. I don't know what he was going to do with his mat, but, you know, so they kind of bypassed the whole idea. Wow, for 38 years, we've seen you out here, and you couldn't walk, and now you're carrying your mat back home. Ah, you're breaking the rules. And So we encounter the Pharisees in, in all of their, their splendor, and it's very easy for us to want to boo and hiss the Pharisees, but every time I encounter the Pharisees, particularly in a passage like this, uh, and, uh, just uh, something from college comes back to mind. I had uh, some friends in college that were identical twin brothers, Raleigh and Reggie McKenzie. And they were great guys. Both of them were tremendous students, very bright guys, great athletes. Both of them had long careers in the NFL. And Reggie's now the general manager of the Oakland Raiders. And they had grown up not in well, so they not only were they twins, but they had grew up and in, in, lived in had the same bedroom. Chose to room together when they got to college. And so they were together always. And as happens when you're together with somebody always, as brothers do and as roommates do and as anybody who you're constantly with can sometimes happen is you get on each other's nerves. And so one day apparently they had a fight that broke out. I don't know when it broke out but it, it was evident during breakfast. Apparently it would continue throughout the day. And then later in the afternoon as they were preparing for practice, I was in the training room getting my ankles taped and one of them, I don't remember which, was on the table next to me. And the other one comes in and they continued their argument And frustrated, the one at the door didn't like the response that he got, and he just says, Oh, just shut up, you ugly mug. (laughs) See, they're identical twins here. Um, And the whole room busted out laughing because they were the only two that seemed to be unaware of the fact that they're identical twins. And I say that whenever I encounter the Pharisees, the story comes to mind. It's because I look at the Pharisees and I see the stupidity and the lack of compassion and the lack of grace and all those other things. And then it strikes me. They would be that day's version of conservative, evangelical, reformed Presbyterians. They are more like us as inclusive than anybody else. And so when I want to poke fun at them, and then I remember, actually, I'm looking at the mirror here. And we see the ugliness in their behavior that reminds us of two characteristics of them that we need to be aware of within our own lives and in our own church. And the first of which is they had no grace, and that enabled them them to celebrate something amazing in the life of somebody that God had just done. And second is they didn't understand the law of God. Now, those would be fighting words for a Pharisee just like they would be for any good PCA teaching elder. You don't understand what you're talking about. Because they've given their lives to understanding this, but it's clear they didn't understand because they saw the law as something that controlled people rather than something that is a gift from God for people. And it was evident because they didn't have a lack of, because they lacked grace, that they didn't know how to use this in a proper way. The problem is not that they held too high of a view of the scripture. They should be commended for that. And the problem is not that they wanted God and God alone to be glorified. They should be commended for that. And so their motive for opposing Jesus is really understandable. They thought that he was not only a blasphemer but a Sabbath breaker. That part is understandable. But as we see them encountering this guy, even if they don't yet understand who Jesus is, the fact that there is no sense of celebration Indicates that there is something wrong in their lives. Some of you are familiar with Bible teacher Steve Brown, and he tells this story. He says, Look, if, if you have a dog who's learned to play chess, you don't get upset with his moves. You're just amazed and happy that he's playing at all. Now, you got this guy who is lame, this guy is broken, this guy is far from God, and he's up, and okay, he's breaking the Sabbath rule. By grace, He will learn the joy of the law and the law that will guide us in a way that honors God. But in the meantime, God is doing something amazing here. And we who are here today represent two types of people that need to understand this. And some of us are both. First are those of us who are clearly like the Pharisees, who oppress and squeeze the joy out of the faith of somebody in whom God is at work. And we need to recognize that being oppressive with how we teach and with our standards, even when they are right, is not the way of Jesus Christ. And second, those of you who have been the victims of people like us need to realize that it's our brokenness and our need to grow and not a reflection of our God. Rejoice in him. And in time, we'll learn to rejoice with you. But then we come to the final scene. Reconnected at the temple. We're told that Jesus runs into the guy later that day. It does say something about him, I guess, that, you know, it does a pastor, heart warms his heart. This guy, you know, been ill for 38 years, he gets healed, and the first thing he wants to do is go to church. I like that. And Jesus meets him there. And yet again says something that may seem a little bizarre. First part's not a problem. See, you're well. Now don't keep sinning, otherwise something worse might happen to you. It's kind of like, suck the, you know, the party out of that one right away, doesn't it? I mean, it's kind of like, who's this bummer? And, and, and is that some kind of a threat? I mean, I, I, I don't, what is it that he, he's talking about? But I think we need to understand a couple of things here. That Jesus is building upon the grace that has already been extended and that the man has already received. See, you are well. Grace has already been given to this guy. And he's inviting him to believe and to trust and to follow on the basis of the grace that he has already been given. In other words, look, see you're well, you're you're healed. Now the way to be whole don't sin. There's consequences for sin and ultimately somebody who doesn't care may be evidence that they're far from God anyway and that's far worse than being crippled for even a lifetime. But Jesus isn't saying prove something to me and good things will come but he is already reminding him of the grace that is there implication of the grace that continues to come and he is reminding him for the reason that he was set free. Apostle Paul picks this up in Galatians 5 and says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And then he picks up again later in that chapter and says this, beginning in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the whole point that Paul was making, it's really what Jesus is saying to this man here, is, look, you've been made healed. You've been set free. Now, following Jesus uses that freedom in order to bless others, not in the cheap, selfish, cheap, selfish way that so many evangelicals are inclined to do, which is, hey, if I'm going to be forgiven anyway, then who cares? I know there are some that visit our church and some who are here regularly and they hear what I teach and what Camper is teaching, and it sounds a lot like we're saying that. And we are not. But we are trying to do what Jesus is doing here. We are pointing to the grace that comes first, which is also the power to bring total freedom, which brings total transformation and total wellness. And in accordance with that, but the grace has to come first, not the obedience. And we don't see see obedience or even Jesus hinting that that should come first. But Building upon that grace. And it's not just a Pauline uh, response. Peter picks the same thing up in 1 Peter 2.16, he says this. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So Jesus is speaking to this man, and he's saying, look, based upon the grace you've already received, believe, and as you believe, here's the direction in your life. Holiness is what was called for. And he's sending us a very important message that we need to hear. We don't know how this guy responded because we never learn learn his name and we never hear about him again so far as we know. So I can't ask him this question. I can't ask him, so how did you respond? But I can't ask you. What about you this morning? Do you want to be whole? Are there areas in your life where you're settling for functional brokenness? In other words, you know that you're broken, but as long as you can do what you want to do, you're you're not gonna ask God for anymore. I mean, let that question probe deep, particularly into the broken places of your own life, where you feel most like an invalid. And that may be in your moral life. Maybe your relational life. Maybe in your emotional life. You can function and go through this world and, and function at a high, high level. But the question that is here for us as broken people is do you want to be made well? And do you believe that Jesus is the one to do that, or are you waiting for some guy? to help you just to alleviate the symptoms? This is a big question, but it changes the way that we live our life. The pattern that Jesus shows us is that he builds upon the grace to give us the faith to take those next steps. You who are in Christ have already been set free. So you're free. How will you use your freedom? And what is your desire? Do you want to be whole? Or do you just want to get by? Get up. Believe. And let us be servants of the living and true God. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for this man. And as much as we hate to admit it, he is us. And so are the ones who are not particularly nice. But you have promised that you didn't just save us to leave us where we are, but that you began to work within us. So I pray that we would be a people that would desire to be whole and based upon the grace that has made us free, may we believe and walk in a way not only that honors you, but in a way that leads to wholeness. Bless us, Lord, that we may see the glory of your grace and your love for us in ways that we wouldn't dare imagine. I pray in Christ, amen.